Do you know the difference in how the super rich manage wealth compared to ordinary people? Because it's not about how much you make, but about how much you keep. And the super wealthy makes decisions different, they strategize different, and how they execute on these strategies is completely different to ordinary people. And if you're keen to know about what the difference is, you're in the right place because today's guest is here to talk about exactly that. Hi, my name is Vindya V. This is Art of the Extraordinary, the podcast for those of you who's ready to play a much bigger game and leave an extraordinary legacy behind. I'm glad you're here and it's time to make your quantum leap. Today, my guest is William Rassman, who is a certified financial planner and vice president and wealth advisor for the independent wealth advisor firm, Centric Capital Advisors. He started his career in New York City at Smith Barney in 2008, and he has worked in many big name financial institutions in America. And he's here to share with you the key difference in how the wealthy makes decisions when it comes to money and what that difference means in wealth creation over the long run. Here is Will. I was actually just telling this story a little bit earlier today. I kind of grew up in a financial services kind of world in a sense where my dad is, to this day, he's a marketing guru for community banks and credit unions. So I I kind of knew from a, you know, from a fairly young age that you know, I kind of when we're younger, we kind of have these pipe dreams of kind of following in parents' footsteps. Some of us do anyway. And, and I was always interested in what, you know, kind of dad did. But anyway, he was working at a small community bank in Stevens Point, Wisconsin. And I was probably about two or three years old. And I was the model in their holiday marketing campaign. They put me like in a stocking. It seemed huge at the time. It was as big as my body, but it was actually probably pretty small. And so they put me in it and they took pictures of me and I was on billboards and in magazines and all sorts of stuff. And so one of the things that I like to say is that I started in this industry about 30 years ago and then I took (laughs) a 20-year hiatus to go and do some other stuff and then you know, picked back up out of college. And so I kind of always had the kind of this kind of elementary understanding of what dad did and which is, you know, marketing for financial institutions, which really is selling to people and convincing people that you are the most trusted and have the best products and have the best service and, you know, have the most convenient ATMs, you know, all of the different things that are drivers around why people make the decisions that they do with their money. And I had a really good economics professor in high school. So I knew right when I got to college that I wanted to study economics. And I went to school in New York City. So I was very, I was close to Wall Street. My school was on Staten Island. So I would take the Staten Island Ferry over to Wall Street for my first internship, which was at Smith Barney. I found it, you know, very quickly, I fell in love with the industry of, you know, wealth management, the markets, you know, how people make money decisions and being able to help them with that in that I quickly learned that it is something that you can do good for other people. Um, I think that, that a lot of people struggle with money issues and need a lot of guidance. And then you can also, you know, kind of do well by yourself. There's a good amount of upside for it, you know, for brokers and planners and, and stuff like that. So that is, you know, kind of my background. I've worked at so I, I mentioned that I started at Miss Smith Barney and then I worked at Merrill Lynch, moved out to Los Angeles in 2010 and I worked at Deutsche Bank, um, the 
offshore securities and options and I've traded Forex and I've done a lot of very complicated or work with a lot of very complicated instruments and strategies, but then realized that, you know, my passion is working with the individual. So I opened up my own money management firm along with a partner in 2015 called Centric Capital Advisors. And that is the main driver behind what I do right now is kind of boutique wealth management for people that have assets, but it's taking the ideas and the strategies of the super rich, the global billionaire class and helping, you know, kind of just regular people do some of that stuff. I've kind of been on this journey for the past few years or so, which culminated in writing a book, which I released at the beginning of this year that kind of outlines my thought process around all of that. From what I understand, you work with different types of clients. What is the passion behind who you help? Or is there like a particular type of client that you help? Or do you like working with anybody and everybody? I do like working with anybody and everybody, but I've come to find kind of through my experience and especially as of late, I enjoy working with small business owners. And there's actually a pretty good reason for this. And I'm I'm actually working on kind of the other part of the population that I think could use a little bit more help in the creative financial planning space, which is the employees, right? So somebody is just a W-2 employee, say of AT&T, there's far less actual creative planning techniques that we can use for somebody like that rather than somebody that owns their own business. But the reason that small business owners are particularly attractive to me is that small business owners actually have a cash engine that they're running, right? Which is their business. So that business is bringing in cash and then, you know, it costs a certain amount to run that business. And there's certain areas where all of those expenses or the outflows of cash are going. And what you can do is in what I do with some of my clients is, is kind of do a forensic audit on the flows of cash and see if there's ways that we can get more efficient with those. And so there's things that, you know, you can do kind of on a tax deferred basis, like defined benefit plans, or you can do kind of creative things with insurance. So the scope can get very broad and, and you can get creative. But at the end of the day, while small business owners are great to work with, Actually, the people that are the most fun to work with or the one that the people that really light me up are those that realize that financial responsibility, you know, starts and ends with them. It might seem kind of a, like an obvious statement, but it's actually a bit more rare than many people would think, which is that I think that there's a kind of this overarching, and, and this is what I talk about in, especially in the beginning of my book is that there's this kind of idea that there's a financial safety net is under all of us and kind of my challenge or the way in which I think we should probably operate is to act as if that safety net doesn't exist. And in order to do that, you know, you really have to become economically mature and voluntarily take on the financial responsibility that we're all kind of tasked with as our lives get bigger and more complex and, you know, more complex problems usually are solved by complex solutions and things get kind of bigger and scarier as you scale up. And these are quality problems and we should take them on, you know, voluntarily and not expect mom or dad or the government or a nonprofit or the court system or whatever it is to be there to bail us out if things should go south because, you know, the buck kind of stops with us. Well, something that you talk about in the book as well is that your experience is everything. What mm -hmm. do you mean by that? Yeah, so I think that this is kind of one of those themes that I've noticed. And, and I think that many people have noticed over the past few years, especially 
since the internet came around is that there are so many things vying for your attention. So we all walk around with, you know, these things in our pockets that are really like supercomputers. And there's all sorts of different apps and different companies that you've given access to that want your attention and they're emailing you and they're texting you and, you know, your significant other wants your attention and maybe your kids do and maybe your parents do and, and your company that you work for, your boss or whomever it is, your business partners, they all want your attention. And, and I think that we've got to this point where attention is such a f- scarce and finite resource, right? We only have so much of it to give that or take an inventory of what we're paying attention to. And to me, that comes down to you pay attention to the things that give you the experience that you want. And so what I mean by that is that if you don't have a relationship with the thing that you're giving attention to, you're probably not going to do it again because it's not going to be fulfilling enough for you. So what I mean by financial experience is it's kind of a play on words with, I think that we're moving from a service-based economic system to an experience-based economic system. So I'm crossing out the word service and I'm inserting the word experience because I think a financial experience is what people would like. And that experience has to do with how things are being tailored to you. It has to do with you know the level of difficulty that's tied to that experience. I think that's one of the big things that I've been talking about lately with people is that as a financial advisor or a wealth strategist or whatever title flavor of the week people like myself are calling themselves, I think one of the best things that we do, one of the, I guess the most important roles that I have is financial stick coach. And what I mean by that is helping you come to or helping you formulate a plan that is neither too easy nor too difficult, that rides that razor's edge between too easy and too difficult so that it's not a walk in the park that you're just going to write it off. And it's not so hard that you're going to give up on it. It's creating that experience that is just the right level of difficulty that you're going to stick with it tomorrow and next week and next year and the next 10 years. And I think that's one of the problems, I mean, especially with the current state of the financial services industry is, you know, they throw out a plan for people and you say, okay, I want to retire with 5 million bucks. It's like, well, depending on where you are, that plan could be way too hard because you've inherited money. That's, there's no challenge in that. And that's really where the, you know, kind of the bespoke kind of tailor made portion of the financial experience comes into play is that all of that is going to be different for all of us. And so really working towards creating the experience that you're going to stick with has a lot to do with figuring out what you want to aim at. And so I do that with my clients through what I call a discovery meeting, which is it's about 60 questions that ends up taking about 90 minutes usually. And we ask you know, all the questions, kind of more of the esoteric type of money questions, like what does money mean to you and what values do you want to pass along to your kids into the world and what relationships are most important to you? And after you could start to answer some of those questions, the picture of kind of where you're aiming becomes more clear. And then you can kind of work backwards from there. And so that's where I think that the current industry is kind of falling behind is kind of sticking to this, okay, I'm going to provide you a service and then you're going to pay me for that service. It's like, no, that doesn't 
really necessarily make sense anymore. It's more like I need to provide you an experience because an experience is something that you'll stick with. And then you'll pay me for guiding you through that. What would you say is the difference between a person having a poor financial experience and a person who's having a great financial experience? A lot of it has to do with whether or not you stick with it. So, you know, going back to my stick comment, if you've set out some good goals, let's say, so you sat down either with your significant other or maybe it's just you in the notebook or maybe it's with a professional or whatever it is, and you've distilled out of yourself some solid financial goals, which are like something like, I want to be financially independent by the time I'm 66. You know, I want a nice home in the current city that I live in, and maybe I want a vacation home in the mountains. And, you know, I want to be able to send my kids to college if they want, or to university if that's what they want to do. And, you know, I want to be able to take care of them and maybe pay for a wedding or two. And and then all of a sudden you've got this laundry list of goals, What that is, is it's a snapshot in time of how you'd like to orient yourself, what you'd like to aim at from here on out. If that list just sits there and then it just gets put in a pile with a bunch of other pieces of paper and then you don't look at it again for you know another couple of years, that's not a, necessarily an experience that you've set out for yourself. You've just done mainly an exercise on dreaming. The experience therein lies when you've taken those dreams and those goals, and you've built a plan around how to reach them. And then you're doing things, say, on a monthly or quarterly basis to track to those goals. So in the way that I use the term experience, people that are having, say, a quote-unquote good financial experience are the people that are tracking towards those goals And that gives them a sense of fulfillment that they can meet these benchmarks and keep moving towards them. Whereas I think that kind of the old and kind of broken model is we go and we put these dreams on paper and then we say, okay, this is what we're aiming towards. And then we never, we don't look at it, you know, for another year or two or three, you know, you're not necessarily creating an experience for yourself at that point. You're just, like I said, you're kind of doing a one-off exercise and then kind of forgetting about it. So I think that the element of sticking to the plan is really one of the main drivers around what type of experience you'll have. Traditionally, we've talked a lot about portfolio diversification and many other different strategies to manage wealth and, I guess, invest as well. So something that you mentioned is that that no longer works now that we are in the information age or, you know, we're midway of it. How has that changed because we are in the information age and how should people do things differently because of that? I was actually just... Harry Markowitz just, you know, made the headlines. I guess he did some interview with somebody. And so if you're not familiar, for those that aren't familiar, Harry Markowitz really is considered the godfather of modern portfolio theory. He invented or kind of came up with the idea of modern portfolio theory back in 1950. His idea around it was to say that diversification on its face, if you diversify across asset classes, that you're going to be able to aim at a higher return with less risk because those underlying asset classes have low to no correlation to each other. So a very common one being that if stocks or equities rise in value, then you know bonds will fall. And maybe if bonds will fall, then commodities will go up. So then by diversifying out, 
you're going to take kind of an average of the overall marketplace and you're going to be able to smooth out your ride and compound your money at eight or 10% or, you know, wherever you're aiming. And you'll be able to do that without as much volatility. I think that what we've learned since the advent of the internet and the data backs me up on this is that since information has become ubiquitous, hence the term information age, we are a far more interconnected global economy. So they say something like 70% of the revenue for the S&P 500 companies comes from international sources. So one could argue kind of via that stat that the S&P 500 is no longer just a U.S. index because so much of it is dependent upon what happens abroad. So what I argue in the book, and I don't think I'm the first person to argue this, but my solution to it might be a little bit unique, that I think we need to move away from the idea of asset diversification and move towards the idea of strategy diversification. Because Harry Markowitz's original idea is sound in that if you diversify the different areas in which you're taking on risk and return, then you'll end up dampening volatility and increasing your returns. The problem is that the current asset classes are far more correlated today than they were in 1950, way more correlated. And so that higher correlation has said, okay, diversifying, at least in my opinion, has said diversifying across asset classes is not going to be sufficient, especially to guide folks through the next economic downturn, which, you know, the calls for that are becoming louder and louder each day. But the reason that I don't think that it's going to be sufficient to get people through the next economic downturn is because as we saw in really since the tech bubble in 2000, and then especially in 08, is that when one asset class fell, all of them fell, except for the safety assets like gold and Swiss franc and some currencies. So that's kind of a scary situation, right? To say that as a financial advisor, if you're just putting somebody in kind of the traditional version of modern portfolio theory, if say you're giving them 60% stocks and 40% bonds, you know, if you were to take that portfolio and kind of stress test it through kind of what happened in 2008, you're looking at somewhere around a 40% peak to trough decline, meaning that from the time that you had the most money to the time that you had the least money, you dropped 40%. And I'm not sure if any of us are really okay with that type of volatility. And I think it's really tough to stomach. You know, they say you just kind of have to ride through it and just kind of hold on and, you know, the market will turn back around. It's like, I'm not sure if that's the best advice to be giving to people because there are some people that, yeah, might be able to stomach that. But I think that there are also some people that will not be able to at all. And they're going to sell at the exact wrong time. And then they're going to miss it on the way back up. And they're just going to get so frustrated with it. They're going to have to put off retirement. And I mean, these are life-changing decisions that you're making. And if you're making them on gut calls, if you're making them based upon your feelings, that's really not a very good place to be. So before I get too far sidetracked, my advice to folks is to move away from asset class diversification and move towards strategy diversification. So there's all different types of strategies that are out there based upon momentum and relative strength and merger arbitrage and commodities trading and all sorts of different things that use market-based instruments, but trade them in a way that makes it so that they're not getting market-like returns, if that makes sense. Mm. And then on top of that, I know this is this kind of goes against some common threads that people kind of weave through things, but I think that your gut instinct is probably not the best place to 
be making money decisions with. <laughs> like emotions and money don't mix well. We've learned that tons and tons of times throughout history. So if you can have a way or if you can develop a way so that the numbers or the facts are guiding your investment decisions rather than how you feel about the market or how you feel about an investment is really the better way to go. I mean, one of the things that you know, I talk with people about, and this usually gets a laugh or two, and sometimes it'll get uncomfortable because you'll know that somebody has been kind of operating from this standpoint is you can project your feelings onto the market and expect it to act accordingly, but 99.999% of the time it's not going to. Because the fact of the matter is, is that the market doesn't really care about your feelings. The market's just going to do what it's going to do. And I think that's, you know, I've kind of hammered home that point enough. It, one of the most important jobs that I think I have as an investment advisor and as a financial planner and as a money coach and whatever else people would like to term me is removing the emotion from money decisions because it's really the worst place to place your emotion. I want to talk a little bit about your new book that came out in January, Atlas Shift. So I'm just curious to know, how did you come up with that name? It's <laughs> a good question. So I have a little bit of a love affair with mythology. So I think that there's a lot of truth in mythology. I think that a lot of people take them too literally. And I think there's a lot of truth that is hidden, you know, kind of within the themes of mythology. So one of my favorite mythological characters is Atlas, who's a Greek titan. You know, some people may have heard of him. Some people may not have. He made a few other Greek gods mad, and his punishment was the responsibility of holding up the sky so that it doesn't come crashing down on Earth. That's his eternal punishment. So one could argue that you know Atlas still continues to hold up the sky. In an artistic way, there's Atlas statues that many times are holding up either like a global or a celestial sphere of some sort. Some people think that Atlas holds the world on his shoulders. And I can see why they say that, but it's somewhat of a misrepresentation of the story. So what he does is he holds the sky on his shoulders and he does that so that the sky doesn't come crashing down on earth and so that we can all kind of go about our lives. I believe that the voluntary acceptance of responsibility, of financial responsibility, is as important as Atlas's job. I think that holding up the sky is just as important as holding up your financial house. In the book, I call it the Atlas Shift. It's a mental flip that I believe that we all kind of need to make to say, okay, I'm responsible for what I have control over, which is all of these things. And in the book, I talk at length. It gets very pithy with there's checklists and there's questionnaires and different things to, to kind of help guide one into getting their stuff in order. But I think that should be taken extremely seriously, and that's – so the Atlas shift is is really this point in time that I'm terming – I mean where part of this comes from is that what we talked about earlier and that I believe that – and I think many people believe alongside with me that we should be taking more responsibility over our economic well-being. The other part of that is that it seems as if the forces of the universe are telling us that as well given that at least in the states here that social security is set to run out at I think in the year 2034 – there's no such thing as pensions anymore, really, in the United States. It seems as if, you know, back in the Industrial Revolution, we set up kind of these social safety nets for people, you know, kind of fall back on after really their bodies couldn't work anymore because it was extremely physically hard work. And given that work 
necessarily isn't done so much by humans anymore, rather by machines. People are living longer and they live actually pretty fruitful, advanced age lives. You know, you hear about people in their 60s and their 70s and their 80s. I have a grandma who's 84. You know, she doesn't look like she's slowing down anytime soon. And so that's an undertaking to plan for a 30 to 40 year retirement. And I think that, you know, people should be asking themselves, is that something that they actually want? I think we're turning this corner into the underpinnings of the economic and social and political kind of tectonic plates of the world are shifting. And it seems as if that the onus is is going to fall on us as individuals to take a hold of our financial well-being. I presume then what you refer to by an Atlas client is actually a person who is proactive and is engaged and actually has taken responsibility for their financial experience and future. Yes. Or is there more to it? No, that's pretty spot on. You know what? I think an Atlas client realizes that they probably need a little bit of help, but the first part of that is actually the realization that they need to take on more responsibility than they have currently been taking on. You know, I talk a little bit about in the chapter that includes the economic maturity game theory, which is, you know, I play with game theory and kind of the two things, whether, you know, your expectation of a safety net and how financially responsible you are, you can have, you know, kind of a mix of those two things. But I believe that the place that the Atlas client lives is with no expectation of an economic safety net and has the time, technique, and temperament to take on their financial responsibility. To me, that is the Atlas client. Well, something that you also mentioned is about a team approach to financial management or experience. Tell me more about that. Sure. It seems that the global kind of super rich are the people that kind of like figure this stuff all out before everybody else does and then then eventually things could kind of start trickling down. And so one of the things that you know the global super rich have done kind of in the past, say, 20 years or so is created single family offices. You know, they have some investment advisors on staff and then they have you know probably an accountant or a bookkeeper. And then they have maybe an insurance person or, a, you know, a tax law person or even a business lawyer. And, you know, pretty much all of the things that kind of we all need in order to kind of do the whole plan. And so what I talk about in Atlas Shift is taking that process. So I believe that wealth management is investment management along with advanced planning, which is all of the other things that you know, are kind of within the financial plan that aren't necessarily stocks and bonds and mutual funds. So the things like wills and trusts and life insurance and disability insurance and long-term care and you know, all of the advanced portions of taking care of your financial household. And then the last portion of that is what I call relationship management. So what we do is we make sure that we have the best partners to help us execute the advanced planning portion of that formula for us. So we have CPAs that we can refer clients over to so that, you know, they can get their tax planning and tax work done and along with bookkeepers and we have trust and estate attorneys that can go and you know help draft a trust or do wills or directives, you know medical directives or, and then 
there's property and casualty insurance. You know, everybody needs to insure their home and they need to insure their car and maybe they need an umbrella policy. And, you know, there's business insurance as well. And so you end up having kind of this Rolodex or kind of this roster of people that kind of need to be called in, you know, kind of when the timing is right. And so, you know, I argue in the book that the financial experience advisor, you know, someone like myself should be kind of the quarterback of that team. And then when the need arises, you know, we tap this person and we say, okay, you need to come in and you need to drop a trust for this. And then, you know, they're happy about that because, you know, they're getting some business, but then we're all kind of working in concert and you're putting the needs or the interests of the client above all else, because in a sense that that is what being a fiduciary is. And I think that's why the investment manager needs to be the center of that, because the investment manager or financial planner has a fiduciary duty to the client to do always what's in their best interest above all else. And so if they're quarterbacking the relationships with all those other people, then the client can be set at ease to make sure that they're going and getting the best deal and making sure that the work gets done. And I just think they're the right person to shepherd that process. That just makes me ask you the question. So from your experience in working with the super wealthy or the super rich, looking at how they manage their wealth or how they manage their money. What are like some of the common indicators in the differences between how they manage money and how regular either small businesses or regular people manage money? So there are countless different strategies that people just have no idea about. I've kind of struggled with this idea because it's difficult one of the reasons that I think that you know nobody has completely taken this all by storm is that it's very difficult to scale something like this, right? So they say that like say nursing, for example, is a very difficult industry to scale because each individual person needs a certain amount of care and it's difficult to systematize that in a way that you can scale it at significant numbers. For me, I'm not necessarily interested in scaling at huge numbers, I'd just like to you know, spread the message that there are solutions to some issues or many issues that people come across that most people, I mean, the majority of professionals and accountants and lawyers really just don't know about yet. So I'll give you a, a taste of a few of them. There's one that I've been working a lot with here in Southern California. So we have many places throughout the world, like I would think you know, Sydney is probably this way and New York City and Miami and, you know, Abu Dhabi probably and a lot of cities in China, which is that the prices of their real estate have skyrocketed over the past 30 years. So there are people that have, you know, say bought something back in 1980 that was, you know, maybe they bought it for $100,000 or whatever, and it's now worth $3 million. You know, that's not an uncommon story. There are many, plenty of people out there that have done something like that. I work with a group, a tax law group out of uh, the state of Missouri that helps create a strategy that will allow people to defer the capital gains tax on the sale of that property indefinitely and help people create a stream of income from that asset. Most people think of the 1031 exchange here in the States where you can take the sale of your property and you just have to find another kind of like property, but you have to find it within 180 days and there's all sorts of rules around it. That's one kind of solution that I've been working with lately. Another one is captive insurance. So business owners that are, say, paying a few hundred thousand dollars a year to insure 
their business and workers comp and umbrella policy and you know all these things that they pay insurance premiums for we can actually help them create their own insurance company because here in the states insurance or has the most favorable tax treatment out of any industry given that the premiums that you pay to the insurance are you know, tax deductible. And then once the premiums get to the insurance company, the insurance company doesn't have to necessarily claim them as income because there's losses, you know, not yet incurred. They have to basically be able to say, you can't tax me on this yet because I might have to pay it out. And then what you can eventually do is just create an asset, which is really your own insurance company. That's not even tied to the business. It can just be the business owner's insurance company, and that can grow outside of all the other assets. And, and you can then draw on that for income later in life. There's things like private placement, life insurance, things like defined benefit plans. All of these things are kind of out of the scope and the purview of your average financial advisor. You know, people at say Merrill Lynch or, you know, Morgan Stanley, Chase, they're not necessarily going to have access to these types of products because their regulatory and, and compliance landscape doesn't necessarily allow them to go that deep into some of these things. And so I guess kind of my high level takeaway from this is one of the reasons that I've been able to kind of gain access to these types of products in this way of thinking is always ask why. It's like I, <laughs> I have a client who's getting a million dollar payout in a few years from his company and it was part of an, a retirement plan. And you know, we're working that through his overall cash flow plan and it shows, you know, in a couple of years, the million dollars comes to him, but then, you know, it gets cut in half because the government's going to take half of that. A good question to that is why does that need to happen that way? And we're working around or working with a solution where he could actually kind of defer out some of those taxes, some of them, and then pay them later on while maintaining a larger sum of money so that he can grow a larger sum of money you know, throughout his retirement years rather than just being stuck with half of it. So that's my two cents on always ask why. <laughs> well, you bring out some really, really interesting points. And I, I agree, like these are not things that a lot of normal people think about or even small business people think about because they don't know that you can ask, first of all, ask the question why. Because they just don't think that there is a way out. And I do understand when you say like a lot of people don't know how to even go about it because they do reach out to the accountant or, or the financial planner, whoever is the financial advisor that they think is the, the person who to reach to, but maybe that's not even the person who you need to first touch base with in the first place. So right. Look, I have more questions and I could keep you here all day asking you more questions and I'm sure our folks have I could got probably more talk questions all day as too. well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what I'm going to do is I'm just going to, you know, like send them your way so then they can ask their own questions. But what I want to switch gears to a little bit is to ask you the question. So you speak about very different ideas and this new book that has come out, which I think people are going to love to know more about these ideas and the new strategies and new things that they can do without actually taking a, you know, like being passive and, you yes. know, just let the world pass by and somehow someday everything will be okay strategy, exactly. right? Yep. So how has the reception of the book and your ideas been from the wider community? You know, it's very interesting. So, and this is a great question, by the way. I, I was very prepared. You know, I wrote the book probably starting in mid to late 2017 and then throughout 2018. And kind of as I was writing it or started putting a lot of these ideas down on paper and kind of reading them back to myself. And I said, you know, I'm not sure how this is going to be received. You know, I think that we could 
get to a point where there's people that are in my industry that are going to take issue with it. And there's people that, you know, not necessarily that I'm disparaging, but I've put together a critical analysis of certain parts of my industry and certain parts of other people's industry. And I'm not sure how well that's going to go over. And and so I was actually quite nervous about this. I guess that, that might be an understatement. I was very nervous about <laughs> how this would all come off. And thus far, it's all been very positive. And you know, I've got things like, you know, fresh perspective and brave and forward thinking and, you know, maybe just not enough people in my industry have read it yet because I don't think they necessarily have a reason to unless it comes out that, you know, maybe their client or somebody like that has read it and it's created a shift within them. But if you go onto the Amazon page and read the reviews that I've got thus far, I mean, they're all f- fantastic. So the doubter in me is saying, okay, when is the next shoe going to drop? When is, you know, <laughs> the super critical person going to come on and tear me apart or whatever? And which I'm, at the end of the day, I'm actually kind of expecting that. And I guess my point behind that is I like to be challenged on my ideas because I like having conversations. You know, sometimes things change and some things shift within me. I, you know, just because I'm asking people to make a shift doesn't mean that I don't think that I can be shifted as well. So I guess we'll kind of see how things kind of go throughout 2019. And I'm working on another book right now. And yeah, we'll see. It's exciting. And so far, the feedback has been really positive. So I'm happy about that. Having grown up in, you know, like with financial institutions and, you know, like whatever related to money and now having your own business, what would you say are like some of the biggest hurdles personally you've had to face early on throughout your career? Well, the obvious one in anybody that I think tried to take a career path like me, you know, probably came up against, you know, just as much as I did is being a young person in, you know, the world of money is is a difficult place to be because you're not looked at as trustworthy. And I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, people look at you that you know you don't have enough experience and you don't come to the table with enough credentialing and all of that other stuff. So what I've done to kind of overcome that, and this might be kind of a word of advice for others, is look at the places in which or look for the places in which you can develop a bit of you know, kind of gravitas for yourself before you come to the table with people. So, and what I mean by that is, you know, get experience in the things that, you know, people find to be intimidating or complicated. So for me, it was, I think, my options, options trading and trading foreign currency and offshore securities. And a lot of that, I think that not only did that teach me a ton about the markets, but it's also something that, you know, you can throw out there and you can say, okay, well, this person, I think has an idea of, might have an idea of what they're talking about. And then credentialing. So I went and got my CFP at UCLA in 2015. And I found that to be very helpful. So being able to put, you know, CFP behind my name and be certified. But a lot of it also is, I believe that, you know, the old guard, the people that, you know, kind of run the industry as of right now are not going to hand it over willingly. I think that they are open to, you know, certain degrees of innovation and change, but it's not a lot. And I think if you want to be a part of that, despite what industry you're in, I think you kind of have to start your own thing. 
and you have to come out from under the overarching structures of big institutions, which I found that's what I had to do. I worked at Merrill Lynch and I worked at Deutsche Bank and I found I needed to be an independent advisor in order to do what I wanted to do. And there's a lot of upside in independence. Let's put it that way. Well, what would you say is the best advice you have been given throughout your career? That's a good one. I talked earlier in my story, my a big part of my story is that I started in May of 2008, which was really right in the middle of the downturn. I guess the story was, you know, everybody was saying that the markets are falling. And, you know, I would pick up the Wall Street Journal and I would look at it and I'd say, yeah, the markets are all falling, but there are a couple of little blips of green on there, right? And those at that time happened to be those safety assets like gold and other precious metals and some currencies. And, and I think this is kind of like an interesting kind of metaphor for life is, you know, this is kind of like a silver lining type of thing. Try and find the green among the red because that's where the magic lies. If you can find that little bit of the green upticks in a sea of red, then you found something special. <laughs> I think that's deep. That goes deep to many other areas. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it was it. meant to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, I was actually thinking that when you were saying, oh my God, that is so true across the life, like your yeah. entire life. Yep. Cool. So what would you say is the worst advice you've been given? Yeah. So I talk a little bit about this in my book, but I talk about a time where I was, I asked a, it was a especially hard day on the market. And I asked one of the women, I actually didn't work for her, but you know, my office was kind of near her and she had a very impressive team who worked for her. They all came from Ivy league schools and, you know, she had 30 years of experience and I ended up kind of having the opportunity to kind of ask her a question as we were passing by each other in the hall. And, and I said, you know, what are you telling your clients on a day like today? And she said, the market goes up and the market goes down. She shrugged her shoulders and she walked into her office. And what I heard from that is make sure you leverage the trust that clients have placed in you. And I think that's probably the worst piece of advice I've ever gotten. It's like, you should never leverage anyone's trust. Telling you know, while that may have worked for her and her business model and whatever that is, that's not the type of business that I that I want to run. I believe that, you know, as a client or, yeah, especially as a client, but even if somebody, you know, just is looking for some sort of advice, the answer of the market goes up and the market goes down, telling you something that you already know is not necessarily the way that I'd like to be talked to, nor do I employ <laughs> that strategy today at all. Well, I guess that's a piece of advice that a lot of people would give, and that is okay to give as well. That's how it's seen as, at least. Right, yeah. Yeah, I'm not saying that might not have been necessarily the right thing to say at that time, but it seemed a bit disingenuous, you know, kind of mm. like given all your experience and all your expertise and all of the stuff that you have behind you, that's the best that you can come up with. The market <laughs> goes up, the market goes down. You know what I mean? Like in the right place. That can be perfectly fine advice, but I wouldn't say that's a very good blanket statement to be putting out to your book of clients. I mean, all that is, is that it's pointing out the obvious, which I yeah. think is kind of, <laughs> it's like, don't you have a little bit more, don't you have a, just a little bit more value to add there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's something that's always stuck with me. Well, if you could just go back to the beginning of when you first got started, what would you change about how you did things? Yeah, I would 
this I think this is going to be another uh, deep and beyond what we're talking about. I love it. Thing, but I love deep. <laughs> yeah. I would not worry so much about what I was doing and pay attention to what others were doing. And what I mean by that is, you know, I think that when we're younger or when we're kind of part of the maturing process is, you know, kind of realizing that we're not the center of the world and, you know, not everybody is looking at us at all, all the time. And, you know, there's a point in there where I think that as a young person, sometimes it's just better to learn, just to sit back and learn. So not necessarily sit back, but to be extremely observant of the ways in which people around you act and whether their actions are lining up with their words and listen to how they phrase things to people and just be keenly observant of the world around you because you know that's the most impressionable point of your career and it really sets the stage for everything that comes thereafter and so i would tell myself if i was younger and, and i would tell young people right now to hone their observation skills because what you witness over the first part of your adult life is really going to set the stage for the rest of it. I'm just curious to know what would be the difference like if you pay too much attention to yourself and not the outward world, what would that look like? Like what's the impact of that? You know, we talk a lot about especially in today's world, we talk a lot about self-awareness and so, you know, are you aware of this in yourself and you aware of this in yourself and and I think that you can only go so far down that road until you've kind of exhausted your self-awareness muscle and I think this is also probably a product of technology and other social and economic factors, but it seems as if it becomes easy to get self-involved in today's world. And and I guess I found that it's just a good warning to throw up to young people. I think that the majority of the answers that you're looking for, you're going to find them beyond yourself. And that's just my experience. You know, I used to worry a lot about making sure that, you know, I was wearing the right suit when I was going into work and did I have the right hairstyle so that people would trust me and, you know, kind of those more superficial kind of, you know, things that didn't necessarily to this day as much warrant that much attention. It's more about how you act and what you say and the conviction with what you say it. That plays far more of a role than all of those other things. And then being able to learn from those around you, it's another extremely valuable skill set. What would you say is the number one thing you've learned about yourself having been through the journey so far? As I've continued to kind of grow, and I've especially learned this over the past, say, five years or so, is that I thrive within structure. And structure actually lends itself for me to being more creative and to be more productive. I think that, you know, that we're all kind of different to some extent, but I heard this kind of funny joke, which I think makes this point, or it makes a part of this point. The joke goes something like, so the professor goes up to a teacher, or the professor goes up to a student, sorry, and the professor says, all right, you want to play a game? And the student says, yes. And the professor says, okay, you go first. And the student <laughs> is just absolutely frozen, right? But the point in that joke is that if you don't know the limitations, you're absolutely frozen, Right. So creating that structure around it, you've actually then created something after you've created a structure. Then you actually have a game to play without a structure. You don't have anything it's kind of that idea around in the infinite is nothing. Now, what is the only thing that the infinite doesn't have? It's limitation. <laughs> 
right? And that limitation is really kind of what creates the confines of what we all operate in. And I find that the more structure that I give myself, the freer that I become. And it's a completely, it's something that is so counterintuitive to me, but has been my truth 100% is blocking time, creating a schedule, getting up at the same time or around the same time and going to bed around the same time. And all of that, I think, you know, regulates our moods and regulates our circadian rhythms and puts us in a place where we can be more and more productive each day. And to me, I find freedom in that. And I told people there's no way that I could have written the book without having that structure. And writing the book was probably one of the most creative things I've ever done. No, that is the most creative thing I've ever done by far. (laughs) It coincided with the time in my life when I had the most structure, for sure. Mm. And I guess uh, like when you're committed to something, the ultimate commitment comes from having a structure around you. Because if you don't have a structure, then you're not really committed. It's just you're winging it. Right. Yeah. You're flailing about. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. Cool. Well, thank you so much for being in the show. You have shared a lot of knowledge and experience, and I really appreciate you coming on the show. And I'm sure our folks will reach out to you and ask you more questions because they're so curious about being more proactive with planning now for the people who want to get in touch with you. Let them know how they can do that and how they can find your book. Sure. So my book is on Amazon. If you just type in Atlas Shift on Amazon, it'll pop up, or you can Google it. I also have a book website, which is atlasshift.com. I'm all over social media, so it's a good way to ping me. The handle for most everything is Will Raspin, so Twitter, Instagram. You can find me on Facebook. I'm pretty easy to find on LinkedIn, and I'm open to you know communicating through any of that. If you want to just send me an email, which is actually a really great way to communicate with me as well. It's So it's my initials, WR at willrasman.com. And yeah, I love having these conversations. I love to I always tell people that I'm always open to continuing the conversation. So feel free to reach out. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Will. I really love the conversation today. Me too. Thanks so much, Mindy. I hope you are as keen as I am to know more about these strategies. And if you want to know more about Will, please go check out the show notes at vindiav.com for all his contact details and make sure you get hold of his book, Atlas Shift. And until I meet you next time, keep at it in your extraordinary journey.